There's one aunt that we talk a lot about and about how she died, and there's another aunt that we sort of, we don't talk about. I think there's a lot of mystery behind it and a lot of fears. That's Katrina Egner, Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Sound, formerly Sound Mental Health, talking about an issue that no one seems to want to talk about, and that's mental health. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. Rotary Club Seattle hosted Katrina and Catherine Switz, founder of Stability Network, another organization that helps people with mental health challenges. Catherine herself was diagnosed as being bipolar when she was a graduate student at Harvard University. Her organization not only helps people with mental health issues, but helps them thrive. On another subject, Have you seen recent photos of hundreds of people from all over the world literally standing in a long line near the top of Mount Everest waiting to summit the mountain? It's similar to how Walmart or Best Buy looks on Black Friday. Long before it became the in thing to do, and it was extremely rare that anyone would consider such a quest, native Washingtonian Jim Whitaker became the first American to climb the mountain in 1963. I had an interview with Jim over 20 years ago. He shared a story about the Mount Everest journey. And also, if that wasn't enough, he talked about an upcoming sailing trip that he was about to embark on around the world with his family. It took over a year, and the trip was very successful. Jim is currently living with his wife in Port Townsend, which he has lived for many years. But he did grow up in West Seattle. Speaking of amazing achievements and adventures, It's really hard to believe that it's been 50 years since man landed on the moon. I'm going to spend the next couple of weeks talking about this incredible achievement. Do you remember where you were and what you were thinking when Neil Armstrong took his first step on the moon? Do you have any thoughts about the feat now? Have your thoughts changed since the actual moonwalk? If you have some memories, I would like to get that on the air. Call 425-653-1166 and leave your impressions of the moonwalk and, again, how you feel about going to the moon 50 years later. And I will get your thoughts on the air. Call 425-653-1166 and leave your impressions. Back with my segment on mental health in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. At the Rotary Club of Seattle, the subject of mental health was discussed And there were two people on the panel, Katrina Egner, and she's an executive with Sound, which is formerly Sound Mental Health. And she works with chronic sufferers of mental health that includes the homeless and people with addictions. Catherine Switz was also on the panel, and she is the founder of the Stability Network. Catherine shared her personal experience as being diagnosed with bipolar. On the outside, she was very successful. She was diagnosed as being bipolar 
while a graduate student at Harvard University. Mark Wright, anchor at King 5 Television, moderated the discussion. I will start this segment with Mark Wright introducing the two guests. Millions of Americans are dealing day in and day out with mental health issues. So we have two amazing women on stage today to help us better understand the title of our program, The Wide Spectrum of Mental Health. Katrina Egner is Vice President and Chief Programs Officer of Sound, formerly Sound Mental Health. She has spent 25 years in the industry of treating those living with mental health challenges. Katrina, it's great to have you here. Catherine Switz with us today. Catherine is a Harvard MBA. She is a wife, she is a mother, and she also lives with bipolar disorder. Catherine is also founder of the Stability Network, which is a nonprofit that believes people who have mental health challenges can not only live with them, they can thrive. So I wanna make sure, first of all, we start off with Katrina. Why do you think it's so hard for us as a society to even talk about mental health? First of all, it's getting a little bit better. You all are here today and invited us, and I can't thank you enough. I think for a long time, mental health addiction has been such a scary thing for people. The way it presents in the street or with people you know, people don't want to, they, they just don't want to talk about it. They don't want to look at it. They cross the street, they look the other way. We don't want to talk about kids with mental health issues. We don't want to talk about our family members. You know, I have um, two aunts who both passed away when I was 14, one of a uh, brain tumor, and one due to addiction and mental health issues. And um, guess which one our family, my family, and I talk about this stuff all the time. You can imagine living with me, right? There's one aunt that we talk a lot about and about how she died, and there's another aunt that we sort of, we don't talk about. I think there's a lot of mystery behind it and a lot of fear. I think that's the main reason. Yeah, and in fact, I mean, if you look at some religious traditions, people who had mental health, conditions were, were said to be possessed by the devil. So societally, we have this ingrained deep fear and mistrust of people with, with mental health challenges. Catherine, I wanna dive, I, don't, I wanna make sure that we, we get to what we need to get to in, in the amount of time that we have. So you have a Harvard MBA, you've, you've worked at the top levels in the business world. Take us back to the time in your life when you realized that you had a mental health disorder? I was first diagnosed when I was a second year student at Harvard Business School, and I thought I was Jesus. I was trying to walk on the Charles River. I was taken by ambulance to a hospital with a psychotic break, and in that case, in my case, with bipolar one. Two weeks later, I checked out of the hospital with a stack of prescriptions and a phone number of a doctor and student loans to pay for both. And so you can see the very dramatic beginning um, and then somebody checking out, as you've heard today, very quickly without that support system. And that's how my story started. So you told me when we talked on the phone the other day that you can tell when an episode is coming on. I think it would be really important for us in this room to understand what it, what it feels like to be in, in your head when something like this happens. Can you take us there? The first two real true psychotic breaks, which have ended up in hospitalizations, I haven't known I was getting sick. I got sick so quickly 
now I've been able to sort of slow the tape and I begin to see myself going, becoming unwell. So I might go into a Starbucks and think everybody's talking about me or think the menu is vibrating. Um, I've begun to pick up very vibrant colors and other things. And you'll hear from other folks who have lived with psychosis that those are early warning signs. And now I know I go home and I call my husband. I call my doctor. In my case, I have a husband and a doctor to call, and they immediately tell me to go up on my antipsychotic medication, which I do. It still takes a couple months off my life because I spiral into a depression. But the fact is, I don't get as sick as I used to because I've been able to build this awareness. Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit later about how important support systems are, um, how important it is for employers to be enlightened on the issue. Um, but I want to go back to Katrina and talk a little bit more. We're talking about the spectrum of mental health. Can you kind of give, it, give us a snapshot, if you would, as to, you know, I read recently that, that anxiety is at epidemic levels among young people in America. Suicide rates are going up among young people in America. Give us, give us when we talk about mental health disorders, give us the broad brush of what's going on right now. Uh, one in five Americans every year have some sort of mental health issue. And suicide is the second leading cause of death for kids aged 10 to 24 in our state. It's third nationally, but it's second in our state. Life expectancy is down for the first time in 30 years. The reason for that is the opioid crisis and despair. Despair across our country and in young people. At some colleges, they're reporting that over 50% of young you know, college students are presenting to the counseling center with depression and anxiety. It's massive, it's a massive problem right now and our community is really hurting. If I have good health insurance and, and I have a stable home, I have a place to live, Catherine, it sounds like you know, this is much more manageable, but, but what happens right now to people who don't have a home or don't have health insurance? and are, are mentally ill, what happens? In order to get good care and be able to heal, you can't just put someone in a house. You can't just take them to the doctor. You really have to wrap all of those services around people because it's the whole, it's the whole spectrum of care that's all tied together. So if we could increase funding, everyone would have all of those services available to them all the time. They would follow the people where they are. Catherine, I want, I'd like to know more about the Stability Network. It sounds like a, a really interesting organization that you founded. Sure. The Stability Network, is we call it an emerging movement of people in the workforce speaking out about our own mental health conditions. So if you go to our website, you, you see 80 professional leaders raising their hands saying, I have schizophrenia, I have bipolar disorder, I have anxiety. And the whole goal is to inspire and encourage people with mental health conditions that they too can thrive. When I was first in the hospital at Harvard, I asked the doctor, can I go back to school? Can I take my job at McKinsey? And he said, you know what, Catherine, it could go either way. I never want anyone to hear that answer. I want people to see that it is possible to go back to demanding jobs and to have fulfilling lives and families. My thanks to Katrina Egner, Catherine Switz, and moderator Mark Wright for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today on the issues and challenges of mental health.
Legendary mountain climber and Northwesterner Jim Whitaker is with us today. When did you first know that you wanted to climb mountains? Um, I was a Boy Scout back there in Troop 272 in West Seattle and, uh, a long time ago, and we used to take hikes up in the Olympics and Cascades, and they led up the trails led up to the mountains, and so we learned a little bit about scrambling and so forth and get up in some pretty hairy places and then decided, hey, we better learn something about it. So I joined the Mountaineers Club and began uh, went through the climbing course and so forth. And then uh, early in uh, 1948, I began to guide up on... Uh, Mount Rainier, uh, taking people out to the ice caves and up to the summit. And do you remember, like, a defining moment when you said, this is what I want to do? I knew I loved the outdoors early on, uh, you know, even before Boy Scout. My parents would take me for walks down to the beach there and, and Fauntleroy and so forth, and I w would walk from Fauntleroy all the way up to Arbor Heights every day to, from home to school and back. And, and uh, you know, I just grew to love the outdoors, and so that this was a, sort of a natural extension of it. And, and uh, Everything is so clean. Nature's a good teacher. We, you know, it's it's wonderful to stand up on top of mountains and to be in the forest. And actually, we've been programmed for centuries to do that. You know, so it's just recently we've been locked up in buildings in the, on these uh, in these bottles with wheels that go down asphalt trails. Your parents were they outdoorsmen, or was this something yeah. that you kind of adopted? So they were. They kind of yeah, they led the way. Of, yeah, they sort of led the way. And uh, you know, the out of doors is all. Yeah, it's been my life. And so, you know, the climbing was a part of it. RI was selling equipment that would let people go into the out-of-doors. And so that was, you know, sort of my my vocation. And then, and then my hobbies were climbing and skiing and all of that stuff. Sailing. You climb on Mount Everest in 1963. How did that develop and all come together? Well, I've been climbing, uh, guiding on Rainier, and was my both my brother and I, Lou, were well known as, as strong, very strong climbers, and so I got a phone call from Norman Durnford, the Swiss fellow that lived in Santa Monica and had thought about forming an expedition to climb Mount Everest, American expedition. So it was, you know, relatively unclimbed, and, uh, you know, so I got a phone call asking if I'd like to join uh, an American Mount Everest expedition, and, you know, it took me a long time to decide, almost 60 seconds, and I said, sure, and uh, was invited to go along. You know, the whole thing is a, is a series of exciting moments, uh, but I guess the worst was uh, the second day we were climbing on the mountain when we lost one of our, our team, uh, Jake Breitenbach, was a guide from Jackson, Wyoming. And uh, they were climbing an ice wall that I had gone up the day before to put route on. There was no other way around it. Uh, we had to go up the wall. And uh, Jake was there when the wall collapsed. Uh, and it killed him. So we lost one of our team just the second day on the mountain, and that was a pretty tough, pretty tough thing to to overcome. Some of the team decided not to do that wall and would stay in base camp and help out, but not, but not climb the mountain. The rest of us thought, well, we we could, you know, we had more reason to cut the mountain even uh, because of Jake. So what was it like standing on the top of Mount Everest? <clears throat> I got asked that a lot, and uh, when we were, when I crawled out of the high camp at 27,500 feet with Gambu, a Sherpa that I was climbing with, uh, we were battered by 50 mile an hour winds, and it was 35 below zero uh, without the wind chill factor. So we started up in, in storms. No one else moved on the mountain that day. Everyone said it couldn't be climbed in that weather, and the weather was too bad to go out, so they stayed in their tents. But Gambu and I had only enough oxygen to go to the summit or back down to lower camp. So it was my last and only chance to get to summit of Mount Everest. So 
we took off and uh, fought our way up. I got some serious frostbite on the face. I was blind in one eye. When we reached the summit, we were out of bottled oxygen. We stood on the summit 20 minutes. And so we started down without bottled oxygen. They asked Gambu at our first press conference in New Delhi, they said, what was the first thing you thought of after having reached the highest point of Earth when you stood there on the summit of summits? And he answered for me as well when he said, how to get down. <laughs> that was the answer. Well, let's talk about your newest adventure, and that is a sail around the world. Just want to let the listeners know that you're talking to us from your sailboat. You're preparing it for a trip that's going to leave from Port Townsend on October 15th. All right, it's a circumnavigation of the planet. We thought we'd take our 11- and 13-year-old boys out uh, and, and show them a little bit about the world and, and about what a wonderful place it is if you can just get out in it. And what's your uh, route going to be? We'll go down the coast, uh, stop in Santa Cruz, we have friends there, and then go on down into San Diego, wait for the hurricane season to end in uh, Mexico, then go into the Sea of Cortez in Mexico for a few months, then head across into the Marquises uh, and uh, the South Seas. And then, of course, you go from there to Australia and then up into uh, the Solomons, up into the uh, Bay of India. We'll plan to leave our boat in Bombay. My friend Gambu, who climbed Everest with oh, okay. me, will have a family, his family that live on board while we go in for a trek to the base of Everest and take, the, take my two sons and a few other friends that might want to go. And then we'll come back to the boat and continue up north through Suez Canal and into uh, Mediterranean. And I've got friends in Russia from my peace climb in 1990 on Everest. We'll go see them at Odessa and then... Uh, Going to uh, Norway, Sweden, maybe even touch uh, Greenland, and then come back down the uh, Atlantic coast, Panama Canal, back up California. And then how long do you project this is going to take? We talk to people that say, yeah, they left, they started for a year's, a year's trip, and they're nine years later <laughs> yeah. still into the trip. So we're saying two to three years uh, on the circumnavigation. But the thing is, if you find a country... You know, you're docked into a wonderful country that's, you know, it's nice, and the children learning the language and so forth, and you might stay there a few months. It's hard to say. Well, I just don't think there's enough adventure in your life. Well, there's one thing we can give the children. They're not going to take a hell of a lot of money uh, from an, uh, any big inheritance or anything, but they, we can give them a sense of, of belonging to the planet, and it's a beautiful planet, and, and uh, we want them to enjoy it as much as we have, and adventure is something that we can give the kids. The other thing is that we'll be communicating with children around the country through the eyes of our children of what we'll have computers on board so we'll be able to talk on the internet Wonderful. Uh, with the kids. So the kids will be oh, able to tell when we pull into a village or into a bay or somewhere of some foreign country and, and maybe even go to the schools uh, they can convey what they see. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. I mean, it's really, you know, taking the advantage of technology and, and meshing that together incredibly well. Absolutely. Actually, Microsoft is helping us uh, set up some equipment so we can communicate uh, on almost a weekly basis. Thank you very much, Jim. Hey, and good. again, best to you. Okay, same here. I caught up with Phil Smart Sr. at an event in 2008 at his car dealership 
along Airport Way. Phil Smart was a civic leader and philanthropist. I just found this interview tucked away in the archives by accident. I am really glad that I stumbled upon this very brief interview. I think you will be too. Why don't you think that people who go into business for themselves understand that? So many people don't. Like you said, throw out the business books. That's what you need to focus on. What is it about human nature? You've met so many people, so much experience. Do you just shake your head sometimes and look at other businesses and go, why just they don't get that? Yes, I don't understand. I don't understand some of the advertising. I don't understand the pitches that are made. I don't understand people who don't understand integrity, the truth. Um, so, yes, I'm picky. I I look back at 89 years and figure, well, what marked my life? What got me down this road? Boy Scouts. Sounds simple for me. The Scout Oaths and Scout Law and people in business kind of wrinkle up their nose and say, come on, smart. No. I learned about trustworthy and loyalty and reverence and bravery and 12 parts of the Scout Law. The Scout Oath starts with three words. On my honor. On my honor. And I wish with all my heart that everybody that's leading our country, leading our country, understand on my honor. Do you think, in terms of, again, looking back on business up to, let's say, a point 30, 40 years ago versus now, do you think people have more integrity today or less or about the same? Probably the same. Probably the same. Uh, there's no fast way to success, however you describe success. Success isn't just for me, isn't money. It is not money. Success is people's respect for you, what you're doing, how you're doing it. If you had any advice, final question, to somebody who's thinking about going into business, in addition to like the quality and the people and so on, what would you tell them? You need three people. You're sitting on a stool that has four legs. You need the product, of course, but you need an attorney, you need a CPA, and you need a banker. Those three that understand you, that believe in you, and you believe in them. Sign up for life. Sign up for life. Because that's how long you're going to be in business if you start it right and run it right and have forgiveness. Make a decision only after 24 hours of reflection if one of your, one of your worker bees are going to leave or needs to be left. Yes. And remember that you are unique. Who's going to remember Phil Smart? There'll never be another one quite like me. What have I done? I have these few lines. 
about the pain in my city and the world. Go break to the needy, sweet charity's bread. Forgiving is living. The angel said, What? Giving again? I ask in dismay. Must I keep giving and giving away? Oh no. Oh no, said the angel, piercing me through. Just keep giving. Just keep giving till the Father stops giving to you. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My thanks to Katrina Egner, Catherine Switz, and Jim Whitaker from an interview I had with him over 20 years ago for all of them sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I want to spend some time this month celebrating the 50th anniversary of man landing on the moon. What were you doing when Neil Armstrong first set foot on the moon? Where were you? What were you thinking at the time? What are you thinking now, 50 years later? Call 425-653-1166 and leave your message. Now, please limit your comments to about 45 seconds or so. I want to get as many people on the air as possible. That number is 425-653-1166. I also have an assignment for you. If you have not seen the movie First Man, Starring Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong, I suggest you do so this month. Again, the movie's first man, it really features how difficult it was getting to the moon. As an individual living through Gemini and the Apollo program, I took a lot for granted. And when you see this movie, you really see how primitive the technology was at the time. And there were a lot of things that could have gone wrong, and they did along the way. Again, first man starring Ryan Gosling. Voices of Experience will return next Tuesday at 4.30 p.m. And if you missed part of the show today, you can hear it again Friday at 1.30 p.m. You can also listen to it on a podcast. All you need to do is Google KKNW, click on to Podcasts, then click on to Voices of Experience, and you're there. And you can hear any show from the last couple of years. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer of Voices of Experience. I would like to leave you the voice of President John F. Kennedy when he made the case for going to the moon in the fall of 1962. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win.